So if you're listening to this, please don't tell Indians that you want to go to their weddings. We will make them boring for you out of spite. Um, I'm but gonna, I'm gonna put that as the lead. <laughs> go ahead. I feel very strongly about this. That's Teresa Matthew, a journalist who writes a good deal about religion and race, particularly about the Cyril Malabar faith, a form of Catholicism predominant in Kerala, the state in South India her family is from. Here she's assuring us that Cyril Malabar weddings are not fun, so don't tell her they are. Teresa discusses some of the cultural differences between faiths in India, as well as between the same faith, Catholicism, in India and America. We talk about what it means to inherit a faith and culture and tradition, as well as what it's like to fear losing them, particularly in secular America. We talk about some of these things because Teresa writes about them. She's a journalist based in Brooklyn and a writing fellow at City Lab at The Atlantic. Teresa talks about how she got her start as a freelance writer, how she deals not only with the economic contingency, but also the existential anxiety that comes with it. We talk about these things and a lot of other things. We talk, for instance, about Twitter uh, and the difficulties of establishing a presence on that. We also talk a bit about Aaron Sorkin and the collapse of West Wing-style liberal centrism. So stay tuned. We start our conversation on an article Teresa recently wrote for The Atlantic about a collaboration between Carmelite nuns and a transgender activist in Kerala to found India's first transgender school. I asked Teresa how the collaboration between the nuns and this transgender activist got started. So the transgender activist um, Vijaraya Malika was actually the one who wanted to form the school. And the nun that I really talked to the most, um, Sister Pavithra, she had worked with trans people before um, in Maharashtra, and she knew a lot about them. And to me, I, I talk about an unlikely partnership. And I remember in the editing process, um, my editor asked me, you know, why exactly is that unlikely? And to me, it, it seemed almost obvious because we don't think our view of religion is so limited. I feel like we kind of think, oh, a Christian is obviously super against trans people, against trans education, against all of that. Um, and these nuns completely defied that stereotype. So I interviewed, um, in the story I talk about, speaking to one, a couple of the priests and the, and the bishops, and they were a little bit more like, oh, you know, we don't know, like, we don't understand that. Um, but the nuns, I mean, Sister Pavithra was just like, we take all of them up. Um, the only reason that they aren't treated as people is because we don't view them that way, and that's wrong. So that was really interesting. So I have a question about this, the, the choice of the word unlikely, too. I was hoping to talk about that. Um, but before that, what I guess I'm wondering what drew you to the story in particular, and also how did you, how did you find it? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll talk about the, first, the, the latter one first. So I went to India um, after I had just stopped working for Vogue, and I decided I want to freelance and do like an actual reported story. So I went there not really knowing what I was going to do. I had a vague idea of doing something about alcoholism, which is a huge problem in Kerala, lar largely because actually of, well, I don't know if because, but my family, which is Catholic, kind of links it sometimes to the Catholicism in India. Um, there are a lot of reasons for it. It's super fascinating. I encourage anyone who's interested to read up about it anyway, um, and how alcoholism affects women. That's kind of what I was thinking about. But I got there and I couldn't find one hook in particular that was really speaking to me. And so I did what I sometimes do, which is I literally started Googling about nuns. So the first story, one of the first freelance stories I ever did, uh, which ended up getting published in the Times, was about this order of black nuns in Harlem. 
and I found them the exact same way. I was like, I think I think I was just Googling things that interested me and I Googled nuns of color in New York City and I found this order and I was like, great. And then I got in contact and the ball started rolling from there. And so I was like, well, I'm in India. I don't really know what I'm doing. Why don't I try the same tactic? And so I Googled nuns in Kerala and there was this small like aggregated article from some like Malaysian news site. And it was like, oh, these nuns donated the building for this transgender school. And I was like, that's really interesting um, because my work very much sits at the intersection of culture and race and religion. And race wasn't so much of a factor here because I mean, they were Indian, but that's, I mean, not really the focus of the story. Um, but the culture and the religion to me, that was super fascinating. Um, so yeah, that's how I found it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so the uh, back to this notion of the relationship or partnership between um, Carmelite nuns and the mm -hmm. transgender activists as being unlikely, you, you point out, you sort of anticipate um, the kind of, not the problem that people would have with that, but the question that any reader would ask, which is wh why why is that unlikely? Um, you, you point out that the Catholic Church itself doesn't have any official doctrine regarding transgender identity, but the fact that you call the relationship or partnership unlikely and the fact that that makes sense mm -hmm. um, indicates a number of things. One, that it's likely the nuns would be going out on a political limb as an organization if they were openly sort of helping and identifying with this, this, um, this activist. Um, did you find when you were interviewing them, did you find that they expressed any concern about being reprimanded by the hierarchy or their bishop? Yeah, so they really didn't. Um, actually, Sister Pavithra was saying that the bishop was supportive of the project, um, which was really interesting. She was not worried at all about being reprimanded by anyone. She was saying, if anything, nuns in the order who didn't like the idea or who were wary of transgender people were going to come around because she and the rest of the leaders of that order were so open to it. And it's interesting because I, for uh, some other things too, I was kind of talking to a lot of nuns in Kerala of, of different orders, and they do so much like social activist work. Um, and, and priests don't as much, really. Priests are more like in the church. Um, there's a lot of corruption too in the Catholic Church in Kerala. It's crazy. There's this new church that, um, well, I guess, I shouldn't say new, I guess remodeled would be the better word. And the, not, the amount of money that, they spent remodeling it is, I think it was in the millions of, of US dollars. And it looks palatial, it's nuts. And, and you know that there are people in India that could have used that money. And so yeah, the, the hierarchy, I don't think is super concerned with what one order of nuns is doing. I don't think they're concerned at all about the political, and the nuns themselves are certainly not concerned about any kind of political ramification. They're doing what they believe is right. Do, do the nuns, or did the nuns, when you were interviewing them, did they wonder out loud whether what they were doing was an actual theological and political push in the church? As in, like, they were being more progressive than the church naturally was, and they were trying to, to sort of move the needle. Does that question make sense? Kind of, yeah. So it was interesting. I, they didn't really, because I, I was talking to them about, I, I was trying to kind of impress upon them how trans rights are viewed here, especially by the Catholic Church. And they were very confused when I told them that the church here, their stance is not quite so welcoming. Honestly, Sister Pavitha couldn't understand it. 
And so I think it's just not, I don't think the Catholic Church has really taken a firm stance in India, so I don't think it's as big a political thing there. But they did say that they hoped that the fact that they were taking it up would mean that in the future, the church would be, as a whole, would be more open to it. And they said that they hoped society would be more open to it. They were like, the people in our churches and on our schools, as they see us you know, leading this movement, hopefully they too will become more accepting. You addressed this in the article, but were they successful in setting up a school? Yeah, so that was another really interesting part of reporting on the story because I started on it a couple of months after the school was supposed to have been inaugurated and all of these sites which basically kept aggregating like the same thing like the BBC and a section of the Times like had all reported on this but it was the exact same misinformation like I don't think anyone had really done any original reporting on this and so I forget what exactly the facts were that were wrong but it was like they said that there were already teachers and they said that there were students living there and all of these different resources were there. And a lot of that just wasn't true. Um, and so I got there and I was kind of wondering what the deal was. And over the, the I guess like two or three months that I was reporting on this, the school kind of fell apart. Um, so the activist in question who was kind of directing it couldn't, I don't think she had a lot of administrative background. She didn't really know what was actually going to go into running the school. And so by the time that I left, it was more functioning as a shelter for trans people who are working in um, Kerala's metro like building. Um, so that was interesting. And, and the nuns, too, were kind of like, we, you know, this is Malika's project. Um, it doesn't seem like we can really help her a whole lot in this so we're doing what we can we're providing the resources any resources that we can to her and we're going to try and, and kind of do our own thing which i talk about in, in the end of the article when they're trying to educate students in their own schools about what it means to be transgender well another thing you point out um, and i was thinking of this when you were talking about the nun surprise at the attitudes toward um, transgender rights in america that you were trying to describe to her i mean one thing that's interesting that you talk about is that Hinduism has, as you say, a long tradition of embracing gender fluidity. Yeah, so this was another interesting aspect of the story. So Americans who know something about India um, will often bring up hijras. And I think kind of the American concept of a hijra is just a trans person. And I've seen in articles them, the, the word hijra used interchangeably for a trans person. And a hijra is really not, that, that's not how it should be used. It's not necessarily a trans person. Um, they're like a very specific community in India with a very strict hierarchy. Um, not all trans people are hijras, not all hijras. I, I, don't, I don't even know if I would say that all hijras are necessarily trans. Um, there is like a Hindu belief system attached to being hijra where... Um, and I, I tried to get relatives to explain this to me, and it's still a little fuzzy, but they, I think, have so much bad luck that you invite them to things like baptisms and they perform to drive the bad luck away. Um, that's how it was, that, that's what, that was what one reason that was given to me. But the trans activist, uh, Vidraya Malika, she was very clear in saying that like hijras were not, you know, kind of an interchangeable word for, for the trans community there. Um, so Hindu, and sorry, so I guess to answer, your actual question. It's interesting, Hinduism does, in mythology too, there's a lot of gender fluidity in a way that there really isn't so much in, in the Bible, uh, for example, but I would also hesitate to say that as a community, Indians are super tolerant of hijras or of trans people. Um, I think that people kind of respect hijras in a sense for what they are, but that doesn't mean that they are very interested in bringing them into the fold or into the community, into the larger community. 
Are you are you continuing to sort of follow this project as it unfolds? A little. So I'm friends with Vijaya Rajamalika on Facebook, and sometimes I'll like see her post about it. But it's it's hard to get in, in contact with her. It's hard to um, or or with any of the nuns really. So whenever I go back to India, I'm definitely planning on following up. Um, from where I am, just kind of the the nature of nuns um, and also activists without. Um, a lot of technological resources, it, it, it's difficult to maintain that contact from here. But I'm really interested in following it. Um, I definitely plan on doing that every time I go back because it's pretty close where my grandparents live. So can we, let's talk a bit about the nature of nuns. So oh, that's I what, love nuns. Okay, yeah. that's kinda, I kind of got that sense as I was reading some of your work. I mean, so as you say, you did that piece um, for the Times mm-hmm. about um, nuns in Harlem. Um, what What is it? What is it about nuns or sisters or just consecrated women or women of faith? Um, what is it uh, about them uh, that interests you as a subject? Um, is there something in their social justice work or in the kinds of lives they lead? Yeah. So so at the end of this story, actually, I think the last time that I saw Sister Pavitra, she asked me, why are, why don't you become a nun? Um and my, my dad started laughing because he was there with me as a translator, uh, which is another thing we should talk about, using relatives as translators. Don't do it. Why? Just don't. Because they get so interested and they just ask all of their own questions because they don't really know what they're doing because they've never been trained as a translator. And you will just be so lost. And I can understand Malayalam pretty well, which is the language that's spoken in Kerala, but I can't speak it. My accent is atrocious. Um, and so I would just like be sitting there as my relatives were firing off all of these questions and be like, oh, God, like, we're, we're just so far away from and I don't I miss like half of the conversation that just took place. Um, anyway, so, so my dad thought it was really funny. And but I don't think Sister Pavitra meant it as a joke. And I, and I didn't take it that way either. But I think to, it's part of why I'm so interested in these women and why I'm interested in faith in general. Um, it's so, you give up a lot, right, to become a nun. It's not something that anyone now does lightly. Um, well, ba- so back in, I don't, I don't want to say the olden days, but like when my parents were growing up, for example, um, young Catholic women who were maybe poor, who didn't have enough money for a dowry, they would often become nuns uh, because they didn't really have an alternative. But I think now it's very much a choice that people make. And why really do you make that choice when there are so many options available to, you know, even to live out a life of faith? Um, why would you choose that particular role? And nuns do an amazing amount of social justice work, which I don't think is really talked about or realized, um, especially in the U.S. because there are so few nuns. Um, and I think when people think of nuns doing social justice work, they mainly think of like anti-abortion mm-hmm. things, but it, there's so much more that they do. Um, and it's not like I think nuns are like angelic saints. I, I, I don't. But I think that's kind of what makes them more interesting. They're very human women who have chosen to live out their lives. Um, not constrained, but very dedicated to this set of principles. Because not only do you have to believe in the work that you're doing, which like, you know, if you're working for a nonprofit, that's what you do. You really believe in this goal and you like dedicate your whole life to it. But you have to believe in the faith so, so much. And I'm so, so interested by, I can't believe I used the word so four times there, but you have to be incredibly fascinated by people who believe so strongly that they're willing to dedicate their lives to not only the work, but the actual belief itself. So another dynamic that's evident in your writing and that I think relates to what you were just talking about um, is the way in which, as you said earlier, sort of religion, culture, race, and identity Mm -hmm. are bound up. Um, 
but the way you write about it isn't it's very much not theoretical or at least in a good way at, at least it begins with real people and communities and from there you sort of extrapolate so in fact it, it seems like a, a lot of the work you do on these questions I, I might this might be this might be like some bullcrap form of like psychologizing but it does seem like it stems a lot from your relationship with your mother does that seem, <laughs> does that seem right does that's oh my god that, she will be so interested to hear that okay she doesn't know what a podcast is though she so she won't hear that she has no idea how to listen to this um and i have questions about that but, okay uh, yeah but actually if you have a response right now does that sound right to you does it um I have honestly never thought of, I mean, I, I do say that my mother is a huge influence in my life, um, in the way that I view the world, in the way that I write. I've never really thought about how, like, I, I don't think the way that I'm drawn to characters of religion is necessarily a reflection yeah. of my relationship with her. I Honestly, I think it's because I'm not a super theoretical person. I am interested in journalism because I'm fascinated by people and I'm fascinated by people's stories and why they live their lives the way that they do. And so for me, it's like any story, any entry point, that is what I'm always looking for. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to try to defend my position that, that a lot of this does stem from the, you're actually, you're writing like about some kind of Freudian nonsense? It's not, that's what I mean. It's not, it's not nonsense, but I have some questions that I think uh -huh. will address the issue. All okay. Right. But first, actually, I want to start. Can we talk a bit about the, the, uh, Ciro Malabar faith? Yeah. Could you describe that faith and your family's relation to it? Yes. Okay. So the Sarah Malabar faith, um, I guess the really kind of short form um, answer to that is we believe, or the Sarah Malabar people believe that St. Thomas the Apostle, aka Doubting Thomas, came to Kerala in the uh, very sometime between the first and the third century um, and converted 21 Brahmin families to Christianity. Um, so that is the original Sarah Malabar faith. Um, there is really no concrete evidence that that happened. A lot of, some scholars, I shouldn't say a lot, but some scholars believe instead that what happened is Syrian traders are the ones who brought Christianity to Kerala. Um, but uh, we are very fond of believing that it was indeed Thomas the Apostle. Um, and so if you look at Christianity in Kerala, there are so many different denominations. I, my parents and I once were discussing this on a road trip and it was just like mind boggling to me the way that it breaks down. And I'm not going to relay it here because everyone will just like lose their minds um, and get very bored and not want to follow it. But one thing that's really interesting to me that's part of kind of the mythology of the creation of this faith is the fact that the Brahmin families is really, is emphasized depending on who you talk to. And two of the large Christian groups, Catholic groups in Kerala are the Syro Malabar and the Latin um, church. And the Latin Catholics are mainly um, convert, were converted by the Portuguese for the most part um, because the, the Dutch East India Company was there, Syrian traders were there, the Portuguese came. Um, and so a lot of Syro Malabar Catholics believe that Latin Catholics were like poor fishermen and lower caste um, people who were converted into, into Christianity. And so that tension is also very interesting to me. Um, but, but I, well, that's not, I guess, ex especially part of this Sola Malabar faith. So I guess going back to that, there are some things that are a little bit different. Um, the cross is different. It has, I believe, a lotus flower on it. Um, mm. Masses are usually said in Malayalam in like a very kind of pure old form of Malayalam that I do not understand. 
Um, and they're much longer too. They're very long. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was reporting on a story of a Sarah Malabar church in the Bronx and I, I would not go. I once I went from the beginning to end and after I was like, never again. I, and I always tried to come late and I always ended up being there for like 20 <laughs> minutes at the end of mass because they're so it's long. It's not that long. Uh, the 20 minutes. You showed up for 20 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Like, I meant to get there as it was ending. Oh, and like, okay. and still, oh, oh, okay. no. Oh, believe you yeah. me, it's much longer than 20 minutes. <laughs> um, but I didn't actually grow up really in a Sarah Malabar church mm. because my parents, when they came to the U.S., um, decided to join a Roman Catholic church and had really no compulsion about doing so. Um, and so whenever we go back to India, we end up going to a Sarah Malabar church. But... Yeah, it's interesting because culturally we are like Sarah Malabar. Um, something that I find super interesting about the Sarah Malabar faith in particular is the fact that it was not a product of colonization. Because a lot of times, especially when Americans talk about Christianity in the rest of the world, it's kind of denigrated. Um, it's I, I feel like it's this thing, oh, these poor like third world people had Christianity foisted on them. And I think that is wrong. I think that you have very interesting Christian and Catholic communities in places that are thriving in places like Nigeria. And I think if you were like, oh, you shouldn't be Christian because you were colonized, I think they would you know, be like, what is wrong with you? Don't tell me that. My culture is very much a mesh of all of these things. Even if it began through colonialism, it's really become something something else. And I think a lot of Indian Christians probably were, um, are Christian now as a result of colonization. But this particular faith was not. It was brought over so long ago. Um, my family likes to say that, like, you know, Catholicism was in India before it was in Europe. Um, it was in Kerala before it was in Europe. Um, and so that's really interesting. People have told me before, like, oh, yeah, like, you're Christian because of Catholicism, or because of Catholicism. I am Christian because of Catholicism, but because of colonialism, right? And the answer is no, like absolutely not. Um, I think that especially in America, we think of Christianity as something that's very white, as very European, and we ignore the fact that it is very old in other parts of the world, like Egypt, like India. So, so in, in an article for NPR's Code Switch, you mm -hmm. write, um, quote, the Syro -Malabar, Malabar community has been called Christian in faith, Syrian in worship, and Indian in culture, a fitting trichotomy for a religion whose center is the Holy Trinity. So it's linked. I love me a good Catholic pun. <laughs> I want everyone was... to know this. Send me all of your Catholic puns. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so let's talk about the, that Trinity then. So it's linked. I mean, it, it, culturally, you stress that this is a this is a unique faith, though mm -hmm. it is linked. Um, could, could you could you help? If you can, could you describe its actual link to the Roman Catholic Church? Because it is part of the, it's like, it's like sanctioned by the Holy See, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. So this is, again, a little confusing, and I feel like I'm going to say something wrong, and my dad's going to call me in two weeks and be like, what are you doing? What kind of ambassador are you for our people? But, okay, so when the Portuguese came, um, the Syro Malabar, they tried to convert everyone who was Syro Malabar to being, like, basically Roman Catholic. And... Some people who were some, what was, I actually don't know what it was called. I think it might have just been called the Orthodox Church. And that was split into people who were willing to convert. And they became the Sura Malabar Catholics, which is why we follow the Pope in Rome. Right. Um, and then the Jacobites. And they are, I guess, like now the Orthodox Church. And, and the, there's splits there that I'm not going to get into. But that was kind of how that broke down. But the Sura Malabar Catholics in India still hold themselves apart from the Latin Catholics. Right. And that's, that's, I ask about that because 
And I'm sh- actually, I put the first quotation in front of you. I might have yes. you read, actually. Okay. So um, I have a question about that, and it relates to a quotation right in front of you. And actually, could you, could you read it for listeners? Yeah. The Sarah Malabar faith is part of my identity. It affects the food I eat, the jewelry my mother wears, the holidays my family celebrates. There is something present at this altar that is neither European Catholicism nor Indian in any way Westerners can identify. So I, I like this line for a lot of reasons. I was raised Roman Catholic, perhaps European Catholic, though I would never have thought of it in those terms. A fellow um, member of the tribe, yeah, excellent. Yes, and so I was, I was always taught um, by my priests that one thing that was great about being in the church uh, was its universality and the fact that I could go to any altar across the world, go to any mass and encounter fundamentally the same thing, which is the, the, the body and bo- blood of Christ, mm-hmm. obviously, but also with that, like the same liturgy and the same kind of ritual and for those things to have the same meaning, no matter where I am on the globe. But in fact, you make a different point, which is that there's something there's, I mean, that, that can be true, of mm-hmm. course, but at the same time, instead of focusing on sameness, you can identify something that's unique in this faith. So what is uniquely present at the altar? What are you talking about? Yeah. So, well, so I I definitely want to answer that, but before I do, I think there is this idea that like all religions kind of have like a same universal truth or even within religions, right? There's kind of this anywhere you go, like you said, but I, I am so interested in the cultural differences because it's true that like so much holds the same, no matter where you go in the world when it comes to, when it comes to Catholicism. Um, but yeah, there, there is so much that is different and there's so much of being Sir Malabar that, um, being, being Catholic in India, that is different because it's in India, because it's in Kerala. Um, and so something that I often will talk about with my friends is being Indian and Catholic is very different than being Muslim and Indian or being Hindu and Indian because everything that Americans know about India for, I would say the most part, um, is based on like Bollywood and it is Hindu tradition. So my family doesn't celebrate Diwali. We don't celebrate Holi. Um, Something that annoys me so much is the um, number of times I've offhandedly said, you know, oh, I'm going to India for a wedding and I had people go, oh my God, that's so fun. Indian weddings are so great. And my friends by this point are so sick and tired of hearing me complain about this, but it's so frustrating to me because A, they're not fun. Like I- I'm annoyed that you're pushing this stereotype onto me. And so I'm annoyed that you're wrong, but I'm like Quit also annoyed that you're wrong because I have to fun. sit through this boring Catholic <laughs> wedding. Like there's nothing fun about it at all. There are no best men. There are no bridesmaids. There's no kiss at the end. Like it's just a mass. It's just a mass and two people get married. Um, so th- that's really not, I guess, related, but it just, it's a personal annoyance of mine. So if you're listening to this, please don't tell Indians that you want to go to their weddings. We will make them boring for you out of spite. Um, I'm but gonna, I'm going to put that as the lead. <laughs> Go ahead. I feel very strongly about this. But also, so an interesting thing about Kerala, which is very shaped by its large Catholic and Muslim population. So I guess I could break this down kind of. So the food, for example, so eating beef is straight up illegal in a lot of states in India, but it is absolutely not in Kerala. We eat a ton of beef largely because of the large Muslim and Catholic population. Um, you go to like supermarkets and there's just a ton of beef available for purchase. Um, so there's that like beef curry is, is very popular. Um, that's kind of the main thing I was thinking of when I, when I wrote that the jewelry my mother wears. So like nose rings are not really a very Catholic thing, especially from the Sarah Malabar community. We don't really wear them. Um, 
then the holidays so like easter um instead of like holy or the volley although i think those maybe are also just north indian holidays in general um but basically my, my point in writing that sentence is just that the fact like catholicism really affects the quote-unquote indianness of the way that i am perceived the way that i have lived my life it really affects my heritage and that is not super visible um, just by looking at me and it's not visible to americans who kind of have no idea of anything beyond the stereotypes of india so another thing you write about that i'm hoping to dig into is your own your own tenuous but still important relationship with this religious tradition and i mean that in a sort of deep sense and so i'm hoping and because you do we write about it very very well and beautifully and actually um the next quotation in front of you could you read that one as well yeah when I was growing up in Northern California, the only connections I had to the Sarah Malabar faith were relatives and the cold marble floor of the church I would visit on trips back to Kerala. As someone often at odds with church politics, both here and in India, I have spent months wondering if I truly have a dog in this fight. But there is still something in me that fears losing it. Again, that's from the um, article for NPR. Um, so what do you fear losing? So I, I describe myself as culturally Catholic um, and I fear losing that. Um, being Indian and Catholic is such a strong part of my identity and I fear that if I give up the faith, um, I will, yeah, it, it's hard exactly to pinpoint what I'm afraid of losing. Um, but I guess when it comes to passing things on, I, I think first and second generation immigrants constantly grapple with this. How much are you really retaining of anything? And I think faith complicates that because, you know, you can like cook the same dishes your mom did and, and you can pass down your jewelry, but it's really hard to pass down a faith if you are having trouble believing in it. So what does it mean then to believe in the faith? Because I mean, I'm, I, I struggle with s similar questions mm -hmm. with respect to my own Catholic upbringing. I mean, don't we all? The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, when I started watching Martin Scorsese, I was like, oh, that's me. But I actually, probably every 12-year-old boy <laughs> Martin Scorsese feels that regardless of whether he was Catholic. Well, pop culture, speaking of, well, okay, you know the, the X-Files, how there's like that poster and it's like, I want to believe and there's yes. a UFO? Like, that's me. Like, I want to want to believe. I want, and there's like a cross instead of a UFO. Like, mm -hmm. that's me. That's like my personal poster. So when you're talking about I want to believe, uh, does it start first and foremost with actual theological statements or principles? Like, there is a God. I think so. And but but what you're also talking about a fear of losing isn't just a belief in God independence of culture. It right. is it is also totally bound up with culture. Yes. That's what makes it so fun. <laughs> and so it's it, we, yeah, so can we could you just talk a bit more about trying to piece through the difference between those things? Like I mean, another I can't, I, I should have it's somewhere in here. I have oh, some of your articles. Um you talk actually about some, especially people coming to America who mm -hmm. are part of this um, religious community. F even for them, a lot of the question doesn't necessarily have to do with what they believe. It's more about having people to be with and having a, a group to identify with. Yeah. Is it the same for you? I don't know. I think... So I think, yeah... It, 
so I've never really been completely at ease in like the Indian American Student Association at school, for example, because there are a lot of cultural differences, I think, between North and South India in, in general, but also between um, kind of Indian Hinduism and Indian Catholicism. Like culturally, it, it, it just looks a little different. Um, and I've never really felt at home in any of those places, but I've also never really felt at home in any kind of Cyril Malabar spaces either because, because I'm not super religious. Um, and I kind of feel like an imposter there. Um, the community is pretty conservative. Um, there, there are a lot of things, like, like I said, there, there are kind of political things and theological things that I very much struggle with that a lot of people in those communities either pretend they don't or like actually don't. And that is kind of isolating. Um, and so I guess when I say I, I want to believe, I'm still not even really sure what it is that I'm looking I'm, to, to believe in. Um, I, I don't know if I would say, oh, I really want to believe in like the Sarah Malabar kind of idea specifically or like Roman Catholicism, um, although they're quite similar for all intents and purposes, according to my father. Um, I think some Sarah Malabar Catholics themselves would disagree um, in finer points of theology that no one's here going to be interested in. Um, but I think one reason that I write so, or I'm so interested in religion and culture generally is I'm just trying to find out what other people think of this. Like I struggle with it so much on my own, trying to figure out the connection between these two things. And it looks different for everyone and it looks different for every community. I don't think that answered your question. It did. It did. Okay. No, it's just, it, it's, I mean, religion is a very hard thing unless you're talking about theology. It's so nebulous to discuss. And it, I, that's, I think that's exactly right because I, what we aren't talking about is a, a, a system of doctrine. Right. Even, I mean, even though Catholicism does um, put so much stock in doctrine and mm -hmm. in this, a, pro, a profession of faith. In fact, the link that it sounds like you feel and other people would feel is profoundly cultural. And I'm wondering, well, I have a couple questions about that. The first, the, uh, d does this fear of not just a fear of losing a, a cultural link to the faith, but also a fear that stems from the fact that you don't necessarily even know what you're afraid of losing. <laughs> like it's, I mean, it's a fear, but it's a kind of nameless fear, right? Because yeah, you, yeah because you don't, you, you can't even describe the content of what it is you are afraid of slipping through your fingers. Right. And I, and I think culture is, is very much like that. Like you don't really understand what you're losing until you turn around one day and realize that like, you don't have much of a tie back to the way that you grew up or the way that your parents grew up and, and you don't really know why. But one thing that was super interesting in reporting on that story is a lot of the parents, I really did feel like for them it was a very cultural thing. And talking to some of their kids who were more religious, for the kids it was more about the religion. And because, so like the older kids, especially the ones that I spoke to, the ones who were still in it after going to college, they came back because they were religious, not so much because it was like a cultural thing. Um, and that was interesting. What do you make of that? Um, I think that that's probably the way that it has to go forward. Again, I, I don't think that you, I think that for like the parents, um, even if they weren't super devout Catholics, I think it was still a really important to them to be a part of this community because they needed that cultural bond. They couldn't get it anywhere else. And I think for the kids, they didn't need it as much because I mean, their families could provide some kind of cultural connection. They're American, so they don't like necessarily, you know, need the, they're not as bereft as their parents were. And so I think for them, 
it had to be the religion that brought them back. I don't think they're going to just sit through masses if they don't believe. Whereas I think their parents would have been much more likely to because they're like, oh, this is like the price we pay if they're not super devout. Like, this mm-hmm. is the price we pay for, you know, getting to like all eat rice and curry and mora together after mass. And for the kids, it's like, oh, well, I really believe this. So I'm going to keep coming. Because in addition to me actually believing, really believing what this is about, I also want to come for like the rice and the curry and like the mora and my parents and auntie priya one thing i mean one thing you also write about is and you write about this about yourself and we've been talking about it but let's say let's say you're a millennial you're part of this generation and instead of moving in that direction toward a kind of religious or theological conservatism Mm -hmm. um where you're trying to rediscover perhaps the like theological tenets in the religion that you've inherited um if you if you go the other way say um and um I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is this a question that interests you? Because you do seem to write about it. Is this a question that interests you as a journalist? What happens when a younger generation leaves the faith of their parents? Um, what? It, it's not just that what's lost are certain religious tenets and a certain moral horizon, um, but a loss of cultural an ethnic identity and also a loss of of a generational link between parents and their children. Is that something that interests you? Is that something that you'll continue to write about, you think? Absolutely, okay. yeah. Um, I think that we really underestimate how much religion, not yeah, like you said, how much religion is inherited, but also how much it brings with it. Um, the baggage that comes with the religion, and I don't just mean like Catholic guilt, I mean like, yeah, like the food that you, well, yeah, I, I guess maybe the food that you eat seems kind of superficial, but religion really shapes the way that you view the world. My brother and I don't go to church every Sunday anymore, but I think that the fact that we were raised Catholic still plays a big part into the way that we view the world and, and think about things and the way that we're able to understand other religious people and, and other religions. So I'm, that's great. That's I think that's a good segue, actually, um, because I do want to talk about your relationship. With, I, I started this earlier. Uh, my mother. Yeah, I do yes, it all comes back mom. to my mom. It does. I would argue it might. Um, so you, you wrote a great medium, uh, an article on medium in which you describe your relationship with your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, be, you begin by describing your mother, age 26, flying to America um, with her husband of only one year. Oh, she didn't fly with him. She came by herself. Oh, she came by herself. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you write, quote, when my mother looks back at moving across an ocean to live with a man she hardly knew, uh, to begin a life in a country she was completely unfamiliar with, she has no memory of fear. She remembers the chill in the air, but she does not remember the uncertainty that would surely have threatened to drown me. So that's just one of the many differences between you and your mom that you point out. Um, and in pointing them out, you often gesture toward bigger questions you want to ask about culture and religion and identity, some of the same questions we've been talking about. So could I have you read this sort of longer section? Yeah. Yeah. The chance to come to America was a ticket to a different life, a chance to curl unflinching fingers around something as tenuous and intangible as happiness. But she didn't realize that building a future here, providing her children with all the opportunities America has to offer, would ensure that they would, in some ways, always be foreign to her. I can't imagine it's ever easy to raise or understand a child. Just when you think that they've mastered the concept of indoor plumbing, they start having ideas that go against everything you stand for. In high school, I remember a teacher telling us that we should listen to our parents and be patient with them. 
They've been through everything you're going through, she told us emphatically. But they haven't. My mother certainly hasn't. She has never wanted to buy a hair straightener so she could imitate the glossy, pin-up, pin-straight hair of the unfriendly white girls in her middle school class. She has never understood the pull of tank tops, shorts, and makeup. She has never yearned for the kind of showy, gold star, palpable parental love that American society tells children they are owed. She finds the concept of dating dangerous and highly suspect. When my mother and I fight, we do so across a divide that is not just generational, but cultural. One thing that's so striking about this passage is the way you describe the sort of distance um, between you and your mother. It feels... um, a friend of mine would call it insuperable. I would say it's it's like it's it's difficult to bridge because, as you say, it's not just generational; mm-hmm. it's cultural. Um, one thing I wonder is why why do you think you find yourself digging into and mining for meaning the difference um, between you and your mom and the distance um, and the the cultural difference instead of throwing yourself into the culture that she sort of as a writer that she sort of brought you to even if she didn't know it. Does that question make sense? So like you're, you're, and you're thinking about um, the cultural and generational difference Mm -hmm. here. Um, What do you see that's rich in it and that's worth exploring? So I think one thing that's difficult about kind of parsing out the general, and I I, I wrote this and and I still believe it, but my mother is an incredibly fascinating person. I always say she's the most interesting person I know. And I think a lot of her, a lot of the ways in which we don't agree, um, I, I don't really know if a lot of them are necessarily like Cyril Malabar cultural. I don't know if they necessarily have to do with the religion. I think definitely her thoughts on like dating and sex are, and we talk a lot about this, um, like things like abortion, um, dating in general, premarital sex, like that, that's definitely cultural. Um, but she's also like a super environmentalist. Um, when California had a drought, she would, you know, collect all the gray water really dutifully. I think she still does, actually. She was the California drought for Halloween one year. She handmade her Halloween costume. What was it? It, it was, okay, so it was like, she painted the state of California onto this, like, large piece of cardboard, and, um, but, like, it was brown and, like, cracking. She made it out of, like, mud and paint, so it was, like, clearly, you know, in a drought. And then she put on her face this, like, kind of Indian, um what to call it actually it's, it's kind of like a skincare thing and it leaves your if you leave it on for too long it makes your skin look really cracked and dry and so she went to like a family party as the california drought um so that's just the kind of fascinating woman she is and so it, it's hard for me to say like certain things about her are because she's indian um or because she's catholic i think some of the, a lot of the ways she is is just like really the, the lord alone knows the lord alone knows <laughs> So um, I have some questions about you becoming a journalist. So you went to the University of Michigan. I did. Go blue. Okay. Did you know you wanted to be a journalist when you were there? Absolutely not. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. Uh, and people who, who knew me there are still kind of confused about this. So I've always loved to write and I've always loved to read. And I have always been super adamant that I didn't want to be a journalist. Largely because I could not imagine. And like, in, I remember being eight and like, saying this to myself I couldn't imagine calling up a mother whose son had died and been like I have so many questions to ask you I I just I can't I'm so uncomfortable like uh, the idea of causing another person distress I was like I can't ever imagine doing that I'm never going to be a journalist um 
yeah, I was also told that I wasn't smart enough to be a journalist. Like there, there was a lot. I was like, I, I'm not doing this. Um, and then in high school, I got really interested in photography. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a fashion photographer. And my mother was like, oh my God, like why? Like, please no, like dear Lord, like what is happening to our family? She, she wasn't quite that dramatic, but she was like, this is a terrible fit for you. Um, and, and she was right, I, I think, look, looking back. But fortunately, I went to a journalism camp as a photojournalist for about two weeks before I was a junior. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I really love this. And I still don't think I ever considered being a photojournalist as a profession, but I was really interested in it. And so when I went to Michigan, which has no journalism program, I decided that I was going to join the Michigan Daily. And so I worked there as a staff photographer and eventually became uh, the co-managing photo editor. And I also um, was an editor of this section called Michigan in Color, which was a part of the opinion section that was like specifically for first, um, oh my God, per personal stories basically of people of color, um, which was really great. That was an amazing opportunity that I'm, that I'm so lucky that I, that I had. And I, and I still was really convinced that I didn't want to be a journalist. I was like, no, like I am going to do something sensible like marketing or advertising. And I had an, I, ad, I had an internship at an ad agency in Boston the summer before I graduated. And when I was graduating, they offered me a job. And I loved the daily so much, um, so, so much. It definitely shaped me into the person that I am today. And I was like, I'm leaving college. I'm leaving all of my friends. I don't know what the rest of my life is going to be like. I might as well do something that I actually enjoy. And this is the one thing that has really made me happy. And so basically, I graduated. And I was like, well, parents, I think I'm going to be a journalist. And they were just like, oh, God. <laughs> why? Then they were just kind of like, why is this happening? Um, because I, I had no journalism internships. Like, I had nothing. I was a photojournalist. And I wanted... And I'd always been a writer, but I'd never been like a reporter. And so I really had nothing to, to go on. Um, and so the first freelance piece I ever did was this piece in the toast where I kind of wrote about photojournalism. Um, yeah, and it was an ethical, it was a piece about yeah. ethics. Yeah. yeah it was uh, after Ferguson. No, I'm sorry. No. It was after... Um, Missouri, I think. At Mizzou? What? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's right. Because you write about Tim Tai. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was the first thing I did. And I was so confused. I didn't really know how I was going to become a journalist. I, I didn't know the right path to take. I really had no one to look to for like mentorship or guidance or like to tell me how to do anything. I kind of fell into this internship at the San Francisco Business Times as like a business intern, um, which and everyone was there was very nice. Um, it was a really interesting experience. My first time like being on a deadline as a writer, I had to call people, which was so terrifying. I remember like I had to call like, someone at Berkeley to ask something and I just like stared at the phone for like 10 minutes being like, I don't know what to do with this implement. Um, so that, that, it was good, but I wasn't interested at all um, in, in the subject matter. And I didn't know, I knew I was interested in race, especially after Michigan and color, but I didn't really have any idea how to report on it. Um, like I said, I, and I was just really scared. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think I'm going to be very good at this. I like don't really know what's going on. Um, but I was kind of determined to still try and see it through. So did you did you just decide to move to um, Brooklyn without any job or what was no. yeah did you have a writing gig or no uh, so I decided to move to New York because I had an internship at New York Magazine oh yeah so after so while I was at the San Francisco, the San Francisco Business Times that ended in like November and so I applied to a bunch of things and I got this um, offer at New York Magazine and I was like okay great like I don't really know what this is going to entail but but I'll go what was it it was it was an internship it was a print internship yeah so I didn't really do a whole lot there um 
there was a lot of downtime, but one really valuable thing that I did, um, we could, we could do transcriptions of other journalists, uh, interviews. And that was enormously helpful, not just because we got paid overtime for doing transcriptions, although thank you, New York Magazine, for that, but also because you learn so much listening to journalist interviews. Um, like the really bad ones, you learn a lot because you're like, wow, I never want to sound like that when I am talking to a subject. And the good ones, you learn a lot because you're like, OK, that's how you craft a question. That's how you do a follow up. That was a really valuable experience. Um, and honestly, one big reason why I moved to New York, because the internship was part time. Um, and I had interned for Yahoo the summer after my sophomore year, I want to say, um, as like a social media person. And I had kind of parlayed that into a writing gig for them, which paid really well. Um, and I was like, okay, like I'm not getting paid a whole lot at New York magazine, but I can still support myself through this. And then on my birthday, um, my editor emailed the whole team to basically be like, I'm really sorry, but like we're, we're all getting laid off. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> Well, okay, I'm in New York. This is a very expensive city. I need to find a way to support myself. Um, so I got a part-time job at a pie shop. And then while I was doing those things, I also was just getting really frustrated. I wasn't able to like write any stories. Um, I felt like I'd come to New York and I wasn't doing anything. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm just going to do a freelance piece and see what happens. So that's when I was you know, Googling nuns. And I found out about this order. And I approached them and then started working on this story. And it originally had started as a portrait series so like I interviewed the nuns about their lives and why they became nuns and where they were from and that was really fun um and then I kept trying to meet with editors at New York Magazine and be like hey like do you want this photo essay and no one would get back to me and it was really funny because that was the nuns like 100th year anniversary of the order being around and they were having this big gala and they really wanted this piece to come out before the gala and I was like oh my god I'm failing the nuns like I can't get this published they're gonna be so disappointed in me you don't want nuns disappointed in you you know That's obviously true. right and they've just been so patient with me and giving me their time and I felt really bad and so I was part of this Facebook group called Visual journalist of color and I posted in that and I was like hey guys like I had this story kind of had this deadline like does anyone know where I could publish this and uh, they were really helpful and, and one person was like oh why don't you um, get in touch with the lens blog which is the New York Times photo blog and I like laughed um, because in college I had been a photographer and, I, and I'd been the managing photo editor but I'd never really feel I never felt like anyone took me seriously as a photographer I was an English major so I was in this weird paradox where like people kind of saw me as a writer and like kind of saw me as a photographer but like not really so I didn't have a lot of confidence in my own abilities as a photojournalist and I was just like the times like what no that's crazy and then um, David Gonzalez who is an editor at Lens commented and was like yeah like send me what you have so I freaked out. I was working at the pie shop at the time, and I was just like, oh, my God, Robert, I can't sell pies. I have to email people. I, I, of course, I did sell the pies, and I emailed them when I got home. But, um, yeah, that was nuts. And, and David was so nice. I mean, I, I owe so much of this to him. Um, he basically said, you know, I don't know if this is a good fit for Lens, but the Metro section is going to be interested. And then he called me the next day and was like, yeah, so the Metro section says that they might be interested, but you need to basically, like, completely redo the project. So they wanted the Nuns Daily Lives. And I was going to Michigan that weekend and I was going to be back in New York the next weekend. And then they wanted it that Monday. So I had like three days to shoot this thing. So it was crazy because I had to work at New York Magazine. I worked until like six. Then I went to and I went to the nun's place in um, kind of like upstate New York, photographed them until midnight, woke up at 530 a.m., photographed them um, most almost all day. Then went to the pie shop, worked until 1 a.m., went home, slept for a few hours 
woke up at 5.30 a.m. again, photographed them all day, went to the pie shop, worked until 1 a.m., came home, slept for a few hours, woke up at 5.30, photographed them all day, and then came home, edited everything, and sent it off to the editors. So it was like a really fun couple of days. Um, but it but it but it went through and I've completely forgotten now your ori- original question. No, that was perfect uh. because I actually I, I had like four questions lined up that would it ideally have yielded all of that. Oh, OK, so this great. Is actually perfect. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of how that happened. So, I mean, well, yeah. One question that I have. I, imagine there are listeners to this who, you know, are trying to get up the courage to mm-hmm. start a, a life as a freelancer. Um I mean, one thing that you describe so well is like just the feeling of contingency where, I mean, so you're working at a, you're working, say at a pie shop, right? Um, you're trying to get someone to be interested in your stories. I mean, do you, do you write a story and then pitch it after having written it usually? Um, I usually try and get something like three quarters of the way done before I pitch it because my worst nightmare is pitching something and then having it fall through being like, Oh, sorry. Actually like the main figure is no longer able to talk to me. Um, it is very, so, okay. I guess anyone who's interested, who's listening to this, who's interested in becoming a freelancer, I, it's hard. It is really hard for a number of reasons. Uh, financial is definitely one of them. Um, I think a lot of the freelancers, I know their parents do support them um, because you do not get paid very much for your stories. That I, I'm la- there, there are ways to do it. I think like if you freelance for like a marketing agency on the side, which a lot of freelancers do, that's a great way to support yourself. Um, but those gigs are can can be hard to come by. Um, and so for me, I've always supported myself by working like part time service jobs. But that also leaves you with a lot less time to report. So it's a very kind of difficult balance to strike. Um, like, I, yeah, I remember doing that Times photo story and like just being so frustrated that I had to work for like eight hours and get home at like 2 a.m. because, you know, the dumb train is always late. The D train, not a fan of you at late at night in Manhattan. And just being like really frustrated about that. But that's just, you know, that that's the way it is. Um, well, because, the, okay, so there's the there's the economic difficulty. Mm-hmm. And then, if as you say, if you get a part-time job, there's the issue with time. Um, there's also, I got to believe, like an existential problem, too. All the time. Yeah. So I'm never, I always think when a story gets published, I'm going to be really happy and, like, really relieved and, like, just, like, go and eat all the ice cream. And I am not. I'm always just so nervous every time it gets published. I remember I got the phone call from David that the story was going to be published in The Times, and I was so happy and I called my mom and then I hung up the phone and my first thought was like, what's next? I was like, Jed Barlett in the West Wing. I was like, what what's is next? next? Oh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. reference to a show that I definitely don't watch anymore. Yeah. I can't after the election. Really. Yeah, that's uh, the Sorkin vision of the no, political it just universe. No, totally. Yeah, it didn't no. work. Election might happen nope. and I was like, I'm never watching you, another Sorkin you can't, again. You can't. The newsroom. That's why. Yeah. You can't. I never liked the newsroom. It was. It seemed a little triumphalist even at that point. Like it was the Obama years were ending and people were like, I don't know about this, Aaron. Also, I just his female character is on that show. CJ Craig is yeah, an amazing she's the woman. Best. She was. Yeah. yeah far, OK, yeah, I'm sorry. We've gone so off topic. Uh, um, no. We're 50 minutes in. If people have stuck around this long, then they're, they're going be to be forever. interested in this orchestra. Now stuff. I can go back to like the technicalities of the Sarah Malabar yeah, faith. They're, they're, they're going to yeah. stick with us. Um, but yeah, but you were talking about the existential problems. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I have an, a related question about that, which is that, okay, so, oh no, but actually you were talking about calling your mom 
Yes. Yeah. And so and what's then, next? And yeah. so every time I have something published, that's always my fear. I you can never rest on your laurels. You're only as good as the stories that you produce. The, and there's also, I got to imagine, the question of just being able to produce stories generally. Because I mean, mm-hmm. I, if you're not if you're not selling your whatever you write, um, the only thing keeping you a writer is that you call yourself one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's really, it, that, that is an incredibly hard part of it. Um, because it, it also, these stories take so long to do. You can work on something. Like, I think I started working on my NPR piece in June or July, and it did not get published until November. Um, these things take a very long time. And so when you're in the process, like you're, if you're in the editing process, you're not even reporting anymore. You're just like waiting for your editor to give you that next round of edits. You really are wondering like, what am I doing? Am I really making any progress in anything? Like not, no stories are coming out. What am I doing? You really have to believe in your talent or you really have to love what you do. Ideally it would be both. I think for me, it's just very much like I, I, what else am I going to do? I really love this work. Um, I remember when I was interviewing one of the nuns, we were like sitting in this kind of quiet room with, you know, Jesus will not, Jesus was present in the room, I, I'm sure, but I was referring to a <laughs> statue of him. Of us, yeah. God. And then um, the, this this portrait of Mary. And I this, the sun was coming in. It was a really beautiful kind of photo setup. And I just remember thinking, like, I, I love this work. I love what I'm doing. And that's what keeps me doing it because really it's insane to be a freelance journalist. I, I, I do not I do not like being a freelance journalist. I would happily take a staff reporter job in a heartbeat. Um, but I do it because it, those are very difficult to get. Um, also another very discouraging thing. Well, I shouldn't say that. Not necessarily discouraging. I am very bad at Twitter. I am horrendously bad at Twitter. I do not like to tweet. I, I'm like bad at being pithy online. I'm always just like afraid that someone's going to find a tweet I wrote erroneously and be like, this girl is terrible. Let's pillage her. So I don't think I used pillage correctly there, yeah, but, but you know you what I'm saying. But it was, I actually absolutely know it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> to our, to, to any listeners that don't use pillage like that. Um, but I'm like, I like Twitter because I love following journalists. I really love and like seeing what they're producing, um, and seeing the ways in which they're like really cool or really terrible and being like, Oh, that's what you're like, kind of like in real life. But I'm, I'm very bad at it. Um, and I, and I, yeah, I'm not, I don't have like a Twitter presence. I'm not like a Twitter personality at all. I maybe tweet like an original tweet, like once every two weeks and Religion writers that I've met with that I really respect, I've asked them for a career advice. And one of the biggest things they say is like develop a social media presence, like be good on Twitter. And that to me is very discouraging. So that's interesting because actually, um, and I do have a question about what you're doing right now. And you just reported that you are starting a fellowship at The Atlantic. I am. So, okay. So your colleague at the Atlantic, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I, I saw. Ah, uh, uh, yes. My colleague. Well, not, we have this on the record now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, what, he did an interview with like long form or something. And he, um, they asked him like, what should writer, if, the, if a writer wants to be really good, what should she do? And one thing he said is uh, get off Twitter. Hmm. He said that you can't. And I think he got, when he was working on, um, Black Panther or something, he got off entirely. So there's a difference, I think. So being a good writer, I think, yeah. Mm. I think, uh, I, I mean, I always think Ta-Nehisi Coates is right, but definitely. I think to be a good writer, it's very valuable to get off Twitter. Like, Twitter is not really going to help you unless you're, like, reading articles on Twitter mm-hmm. that are making you a better writer. Um, however, getting hired as a writer, getting noticed as a writer, you absolutely need Twitter for that. 
Um, and like I know like all the young media darlings of, you know, the New York writing world, like they get hired a lot of times because of their social media presence. I'm like, I don't mean to disrespect that. Like they're very good at it. Um, but I, I, I can't do that. Why do you think you're not able to do it? I mean, you're certainly able, oh, but God. why, why no, are I, you I'm reluctant not. to do it? I, I actually, I, I don't know if I'm able. I think, I think part of it is fear. Definitely. Like I am just like, Oh God, this is like the not going to be a good tweet. The pillaging. Yeah. I'm so scared of the pillaging. Um, yeah, that, that's absolutely a real fear. I just, I don't know. I think I can be like, a, I think in person I'm like decently humorous. But I, I think in 140 characters, I'm just, like, not very good at being pithy. Um, I think, yeah, so I think part of it is definitely fear. Part of it is maybe I just, like, don't really, I don't really like tweeting. Mm -hmm. um, it, and it does seem like you either have to care, like, it, if, if, you're, if you're okay with people being very angry at you, then you can, or just some people out in the world just hating you mm -hmm. um, for what you say. Uh, then you, you can get on Twitter and say exactly what you want and be interesting because of it probably right. and then get a lot of followers. If you're not that way, it seems like you have to very carefully curate yourself. That's the thing. It's so hard. I, like, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and also, honestly, as a woman, like, I do just fear getting... Mm -hmm. I, my Right now, I have, like, two followers, okay? No one is coming for me. But, you know, if, if you do tweet a lot, inevitably that happens to you. Um, like you see the kind of nonsense that basically every prominent female writer deals with. And it's like, I, I don't want that. I, I don't know that I could really handle that super well. Um, yeah. I, well, a friend of mine who is a journalist was like complaining about people on Twitter who like, or journalists on Twitter specifically who are like, I tweet, therefore I am, you know? And so they're just like always tweeting all these things that they think are like so funny. And of course you see everyone on Twitter basically making the same joke mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Um, and, I, and I definitely don't want to be like that. But a lot of writers that I really love are super good at Twitter. Like, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones is really good yeah, at she, Twitter. Yeah, some of them are very effective at yes. it in a strange way. Yeah, they're just um, people and they get that retweets like 4,000. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think if you're a journalist with a steady beat, it maybe is easier because you're tweeting out constantly like what you're working on mm -hmm. and interesting things you're reading about. And I think maybe also what's hard about being a freelancer is I work on these, they're not disjointed stories. There is kind of a definite train that runs through what I do but it's not like every day I'm like working on these things and so I just don't have that much to tweet about unless I tweet about like what the general social media darlings tweet about like their lives or like you know whatever I don't really want to share that much of my own private life on the Twitter um yes I just called it the Twitter another reason Twitter I'm not good at it um yeah well, I mean, uh, you're right about the, uh, the the beat thing. It does seem like like um, Rukumini Kalamaki at the times can like t like like do ten straight tweets yeah. of just whatever she's reporting on, and it's so hard hitting. And it's like so nuanced and yeah. informative. It is. Like, oh, it's like God. she just wrote the article just <laughs> know, like for Twitter, and she can just copy and paste <laughs> into the Times. Um, so, but if you get a beat, which I mean, okay, so this is the segue back into the Atlantic. So you're starting mm -hmm. there. Um, what will you be doing? Will you have a beat? So I will be a fellow at City Lab, which is the Atlantic's um, like cities and urbanization vertical. And I'm not entirely sure what I will be doing, to be perfectly honest, but I'm hoping that at least for part of it, I will be able to focus on cities and, well, obviously, sorry, cities and religion. So the ways in which religion impacts cities, the ways in which cities impact religion. Um, there are a couple of stories that I already know that I like really want to do, whether or not I'll actually be able to do them, whether or not 
the Atlantic will think they're interesting is obviously a completely different matter. But I think that there is so much about urban life and so much about religious life that kind of like go hand in hand and the relationship between them is super interesting. What, what goes hand in hand? So the spaces that we live in and the communities that we're around inevitably are going to affect the way that we practice religion and the way that we live it out. And when you live in a city when, in which all of these different communities kind of bump up against each other, that just causes so much more, so much strife, um, but also, you know, ways in which communities can, different communities can, can kind of come together um, and live alongside each other in ways that are just like super interesting. Um, so I guess one story that I am really interested in that actually a radio station in D.C. just did about D.C. Um, is the way in which gentrification is affecting black churches in places like Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy. Because um, you look at the history of, for instance, Black Bottom and like when the highway cut through there, it, it destroyed this, this thriving black community. But what was really interesting to me is how the black businesses could not really regroup anywhere because all their clientele was gone. And that's, I guess, something you don't, you're just like, oh, well, they can like relocate. But it, it doesn't work that way because you, it's very much a community business. And churches obviously are also very much like that. Like, what is a church without its parishioners? So there's that aspect of it. But to me also, there's added element of, like, what happens to the faith? If you move out and you stop going to church, do you go to a different church? Do you just stop going? What happens to that religion? So that's something I'm really interested in. Um, a story I'm working on right now that isn't for City Lab, I don't know who it's going to be for. Yay, being a freelancer. Is um, there's a Sikh motorcycle club. Um, Sikhism, for anyone who does not know, is a religion from um, Punjab um, we could I could talk about it for a very long time I don't I don't, I don't know what it, what's the most salient details to say about Sikhism um, it's not Hinduism it's not Islam Sikhs are most prominently identified um, by the turbans men pr generally wear the turbans uh, but some women do as well okay anyway so the motorcycle club there um, I, I went to a portrait series that what, that had portraits of different Sikh men and women who wore the turban. And one of them was this um, older Sikh gentleman who had on a motorcycle jacket and said he was part of a Sikh motorcycle club of the Northeast. And I was like, excellent, that is my next photo story. And so I contacted them and they're super nice. It's a bunch of Sikh men and, and a, a few women, generally wives of, of, the, of the members, um, who occasionally will like get together and ride around. Um, and I went out with them for a ride in New Jersey and Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, which was so fun. It was the most fun I've ever did had you, shooting anything. Did you anything. drive the motorcycle or were you on the back? I did not. When I was in India, I started to learn how to ride a motorcycle. I really want a motorcycle license, but I don't have one yet um, for various reasons. But yeah, I was in a convertible. I was sitting in the passenger seat of this convertible and we were following them. And so I was like kind of like leaning out of the side. I'm like turning around. I'm like leaning over the top. It was amazing. I felt like I was filming an act. I was like a PA in an action movie, uh, which was very cool. And it was going to be just a photo essay at first, but I, at the end of this ride, they went to a one-year-old's birthday party and they were all sitting around and kind of talking about the club and they were talking about who would get to be a member. And it was just so interesting to hear them talk about this because they were deliberating how, basically how religious you had to be in order to wear the logo of the club on your back. And I just thought that was a very interesting question. And also, six do not drink. They do not smoke. Uh, they All of these are like older men with families, with like young kids. And it's just so different from the way that we think of motorcycle clubs in American culture. Um, and so that dichotomy I just found so fascinating. So I'm going to like continue to cover them over the, the course of the next few months. 
They're so great. I love them. And also, to anyone who ever reports on Six, they do not eat in advance because they are a culture that loves feeding people, and I am so here for that. It's amazing. So, I, Teresa, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'll, I'll, use, I'll use that article plug as a way. Just listeners should, should keep their eyes open for, um, for, for that article. Um, and thanks, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. That was Teresa Matthew. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service, a program that addresses many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. Uh, so to learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.